Um, we're going to get into the Word this morning. We're going to get into, uh, again, our um, series, our devotional series called Before Him. And this week, we're going to focus on a tough one. And they've all been kind of tough, but this week we're going to focus on humility. Humility. And so before we get into it, uh, I just want to go over the three things, the three keys, really, that we have been talking about each and every time. Uh, we have been we're talking about this series before him and that is basically this is that if we're gonna have spirit-led responses right if we're gonna respond in a spirit-led way three things have got to happen they've got to be determined our responses have got to be determined or have got to start in his presence they've got to start in his presence they've got to be determined by his presence not by others and finally they've got to be communicated from his presence so we've got to be determined to respond through the Spirit, but we've also got to communicate that led by the Spirit as well. So this morning, we're going to talk and we're going to share um, and discuss a little bit about what is another key component that we can find in Scripture uh, that will help us uh, craft and develop Spirit-led responses. And that one component is humility this morning. Humility. And we're going to look... Uh, at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're, we're going to look at David. We're going to look at uh, his response when he came before the Lord. What his response was when he came into the presence of God in the tent that he had pitched for him. And so the key this morning is this. The key takeaway is this, that humility is the first step to holiness. Humility is the first step to holiness. In First Chronicles, this is, this is just something to sort of just um, encourage you with this morning. And it kind of goes with what we're going to be talking about. In First Chronicles 16, 12, David says this, he says, seek the Lord and his strength and his presence continually. Seek the Lord and his strength and his presence continually. And that was a, a prayer that he was crafting right after he had brought the ark back into the tent in which he had set up for the presence of God where he was in Jerusalem. But it, it's, it's this idea that we're talking about is like when we're coming before God, when we're coming before him, right? The idea is, is that we are continually in his presence. The writer says is that we, we, we are continually coming before the Lord to seek his strength and continually seek his presence. That there should never be a time when we're not seeking his presence in everything we're doing. And that is really the key for this devotion. This is the key for this idea of coming before him. That is, that is where we start. It's in his presence and continually seeking him. So the key takeaway is this, is that humility, and we're going to unpackage this, is the first step to holiness. And I know holiness is a tough word, but we're going to talk a little bit about holiness. Because I think holiness, sometimes when we talk about holiness, 
we're like, whoa, that's just too much for me. Like, I, I, we can't talk about holiness because then we have a, have a reaction like Peter did in, uh, in Luke when he was face-to-face uh, -face with what Jesus had provided to him with the fish outside the boat in the nets. But we're going to talk about holiness this morning a little bit because I don't think we talk about it enough. Because to us, it's like this some unachievable goal. But we see in Scripture that, that that is not the case, that, that that is not the life that God has called us to live. God has not called us to live just being uh, frustrated because we can't be holy. It's cool. So 2 Samuel, let's go there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I just want to give you a little bit of, a co of context here. So David now is back at his home. He's kind of in his place of rest because he's been fighting a lot and gaining territory and gaining land for the nation. He's expanding the territory. They've been in the land for a while. He's expanding the territory and he's at home and he's resting. And he begins to have this conversation with God and he says, Lord, I live in this amazing house, this palace, and he calls it a house of cedar. He said, but you're, but you're living in a tent. You don't have a permanent dwelling. They just brought the ark back after close to 85 years of it not being in their possession. I mean, it, it was in their possession, but it was with, a, with another family for a very long period of time. We're not going to go into that. But David makes the decision to bring the ark with him where he is in Jerusalem. And then the ark had been captured by the Philistines and then brought back because, I mean, it was just an utter disaster when they were in possession of it. So they gave it back. But David never had it. So David now, in his rest, now decides after the ark comes back that he wants to build a house for the Lord to put the ark of the covenant in. He goes, Lord, I live in this amazing house, a house of cedar. And yet you live in a temple, in a, in a, in a tabernacle, in a tent. And your presence is there. But I want to build you a house. And basically the Lord responds to him through Nathan, the prophet, and says, listen, David, don't worry about the house. I'll decide when I build the house. The house is not for you to build. Yes, my presence has been dwelling in temporary residence, never a real home. We talked a little bit about typology, right? And, and, and the symbolism of Christ in the Old Testament and being able to find Christ in the Old Testament. And, and this can kind of speak to that idea a little bit. The father was okay with his presence not being in a, in a permanent dwelling. And we know that Jesus told his disciples, if you want to follow me, you better, make, you better, you better uh, prepare yourselves never to lay your heads in your homes again. Because I don't have a home. Kind of foreshadowing 
Jesus, when he comes to the earth. And so David, he hears this from the Lord. Basically, the Lord says to him, don't worry about my house. I'm cool living in a temporary residence. The house is not for you to build, but it'll be for your offspring too. And then he promises him the, the, the dynasty of his offspring going forward. And so this is where we pick it up. Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, verse 18. After uh, Nathan had uh, shared this with David, it says, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. I want to stop there. I'm going to kind of break that down a little bit, piece by piece. So the first thing we read is that King David went in and sat before the Lord. This is important. He sat, and it's this word that means to dwell, to remain, to sit, or to abide. But normally when people went into the temple or the, the tabernacle or, or the tent, they didn't necessarily sit. They were either always kneeling or standing. But in some of the commentaries that I was reading, it, it actually said that in, in some of the old Jewish texts that it was actually okay and it was permissible for kings to go in before the Lord and sit in his presence. So King David came in and sat before the Lord. Now this word before is significant because this word before is really translated uh, the word uh, face or in front of. So it's this idea, it's this picture that when he sat before the Lord, it meant he was face to face in front of the presence of God. We see in David when he comes into the presence of God, there is a positioning of his heart that's represented by the position of his body. He's sitting before the Lord. He's almost you know, in this, in this state of, uh, of just contemplating God's goodness, contemplating and, and resting in his presence. He may have gone in there for a, little, for a little while and just sat there without ever even saying anything, just sitting and enjoying his presence. So often when we come into the presence of God, it's, it's always about dialogue or it's always about conversation or it's always about asking for something or it's, you know, oftentimes there's, there's, it's difficult to sit in his presence. 
When we sit in his presence, sometimes we're, rem we're reminded of our humanity. When we sit in his presence, sometimes we're reminded of his holiness. When we sit in his presence, sometimes we're reminded of our shortcomings. But when we sit in his presence, it's never to condemn. It's always to draw near to him. And so that's what we see David doing. He draws near. It's a, the positioning. He's positioning his heart before the Lord. Now, this was David's tent. So just a little context here. There were actually two tents or two tabernacles at this time. There was one in the town of Gibeon, and that was the Mosaic tent. So that was the original tent that was built and constructed in the desert. And it was brought to Shiloh at the beginning of their journey into Canaan, and then it moved, and then it eventually ended up in Gibeon, which was Saul's hometown. And so you had the tabernacle, the mosaic tabernacle in Gibeon without the ark. Because the ark has been gone for close to 90 years. And it has not been brought back and was not united with the tabernacle. And it never was. It was brought back into the temple when Solomon built it. But up until that point, it was separated. So you had the tabernacle in Gibeon. And then you had David who pitched a tent his own sort of tabernacle for the Lord in Jerusalem where he lived. And so when he brings the ark back, he puts it in this tent, not in the one in Gibeon, not in the original tabernacle, but in his tent that he pitched for the Lord. That's significant. Many have suggested that it didn't quite look the same as the Mosaic tent. We don't know for sure. There's not a lot of explanation about what David's tent looked like. But we can say this, is that the service was much different. The ritual daily sacrifices were not performed at David's tent like they were in Gibeon. Worship took more of a musical approach. In fact, it was in David's tent where music was actually introduced as a form of worship to the Lord. And so you have David's tent, and you have the ark. And it's really interesting because, you know, some, some people, you know, comment that, and we can't infer this from the text, but that, that the setup was much different. It could have been just one room. Like, you walk in, and the ark is right there. No veil. We don't know for sure, but it didn't look like the mosaic tent. It almost could be somewhat of a foreshadowing of Christ coming in the sense that we get to enter into the presence without the veil. It's interesting. It's definitely up for debate and conjecture, but it is really cool to think about that. So we have David's tent. And he comes into the tent, and he sits before it, and he's contemplating and he's positioning his heart. He's positioning his heart to engage with the Father in his presence. And then he says this, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house 
that you have brought me thus far. What's his response in his presence? Complete and total humility. The question he asks is, who am I? It's a rhetorical question. It doesn't need answering. Who am I? Who am I to sit in your presence, Lord? Who am I that you've built this house, um, this dynasty around? Who am I that you have done these things and that you have used me as a tool and as an instrument for, for the expansion of your land, for the rule and reign of your kingdom? Who am I, Lord? Humility brings perspective. Humility brings perspective. That's what David was doing. Gaining perspective. Who am I? And what is my house? What is my house? This is just a small thing for you, Lord. What you've done with my house, with my name, Everything you've accomplished and conquered is so still such a small thing for you because of your wonder and your greatness and your glory. David was in complete surrender to his presence in this moment. Humility, when we come into his presence and we allow humility to take over, when we place ourselves in a position of humility before the Lord, it brings perspective. Who am I? Who am I, Lord? And what is my house? It's no small thing. It's a small thing for you to do what you've done, yet you've used me. Humility is formed when we fix our hearts. Humility is formed when we fix our hearts. And I don't mean like fix as in we repair. Humility is formed when we fix our hearts. In Psalm 57, it says, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed on you. Humility is formed when we position and fix our hearts so that nothing comes before him. We position our hearts and we position God in our hearts in a place where there is nothing greater. There is nothing that comes before. There is nothing higher. There is nothing more grand. There is nothing that we will put our attention to any more than his presence. When we fix our hearts, we, desire, we decide to position God in his proper place, which is above all things, above everything else in our lives. When we position our hearts and fix our hearts and position him in that place, that's where humility is formed. And humility is absolutely critical to respond in a spirit-led, spirit-directed way today in our culture. 
Here's the most amazing thing. Dar David was a darling of his nation. He, his name was known across the land. He was a warrior, a conqueror. He was feared by his enemies. He was feared by the other kings and the other nations in the land. He was the pride of, of Israel. But yet, what is his response? Who am I? And what is my house? What is my house, Lord? Thirdly, humility develops awareness. Listen to what David says. Humility develops awareness. He says, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Like, what more can I say to you? For you know me. You know me. There, there isn't nothing that you don't know about me. Like, what else can I say in your presence? My humility brings me to a place of complete silence. I can't say anything. I'm just resting in your presence. Why? Because you know me and you know every word that proceeds from my mouth. What can I say? There is nothing. You know me. You know every part of me. You know every thought. You know uh, every, you know every mindset. You know every struggle. You know every fear. You know every concern. You know every point of pride. You know it all. In Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews says this about the word of the Lord. <laughs> it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And this is what it does. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight but all are naked and exposed. That's what the word of God does. That's what God's presence does when we come to a place of humility in his presence. It exposes us for who we are. Not so that we can stay there. Not so that we can be condemned for it. No, it exposes us so that God can use it to bring us into a new place of uh, regeneration and being transformed. But if we're not willing to expose ourselves, if we're not willing to understand that he knows us, if we're not willing to understand that we, in our response to his presence, must be completely truthful about who we are, there is no chance for transformation and to become more like him. Humility develops awareness. Humility opens us up 
and we are exposed. The truth of the word of God should always bring humility to us. We see this in Luke chapter 5. I mentioned it in the beginning. Where Peter, in the boat with Jesus, Jesus tells him to put down his nets, and, G and Peter says, what are you talking about, Lord? I've been out all night. I'm a fisherman. You don't catch fish at this time of the day. So I don't know what you're saying, but I guess I'll trust you anyway. I'll put down my net, even though I don't think it's going to make a difference. And he puts down his net as Jesus asked him to put down his net, and he begins to reel in all these fish. So much so that the, the nets start to break and the boat starts to sink. I mean, the, 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 uh, the provision is just uh, so great. But what's Peter's reaction when that begins to happen? What's his reaction? Depart from me, O Lord. Depart from me. I am sinful. God, your holiness your holiness shows, uh, exposes my unholiness. That's why I need you. Your righteousness exposes my unrighteousness. That's why I need you. He came for that very purpose. Not so that we can sit and be condemned in our iniquity. Not so we can sit and be condemned in our inability to be obedient to Christ. But so we can actually put our faith in him so that we can receive the spirit living in us, so that we can tra be transformed, so we can actually live in righteous obedience to him. Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Here's another cool thing that humility does. Humility actually restores relationships, and this is where it gets real. Humility can actually restore relationships. I want you to think about some relationships in your life right now or ones in the past that have been severed, that have been strained, that have been torn, that cause pain. I want you to think of some relationships in your life that are estranged where there was once life, there is now nothing. And I want you to think about the idea of humility and the part that it plays in the restoration of relationships. When we cannot respond to one another in humility, Oftentimes, that is the actual cause of the rift. That is the actual cause 
of the separation. But it's humility that restores relationships. And that is why it is so crucial if we're going to respond with spirit-led responses, they have to be rooted in his presence, which creates humility and develops humility. Because without it, we will have a life of strained relationships. We will have a life of separation with those that we were once in unity with. In Matthew 11, chapter 27, Jesus says this, All things have been handed over to me, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and any of those that the Son decides to reveal him to. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We talked about rest last week, right? The idea that Jesus is the rest that he came to fulfill the Sabbath. That's why he could heal on the rest and not be in violation of the law. Pharisees could not figure out why he was healing people on the Sabbath day because you were not supposed to do any work. You were supposed to rest and to worship God. But how is healing not worshiping God? And Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the rest. I am the rest. I've come to fulfill the Sabbath. What you understood in the Old Testament was a shadow of the fulfillment that I've brought. I am it. He says, I, uh, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, this word lowly basically means not rising too far from the ground or a very low degree. So it's, this, it's the antithesis of elevating oneself. When we are brought low, and in other uh, renditions, it's rendered humble. For I have or I am humble. It is this idea, I have been brought low. I am humility. It's so opposite of what the culture teaches us today to pursue. All the culture today tells us to pursue is to elevate ourselves to elevate status, to elevate influence. More likes, more comments, more subscribers, more followers. Elevate your brand. Elevate it for influence. Yet Jesus said, I have been brought low. Want some more evidence for that? Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 and 8. It 
So Paul goes on to talk about how we as Christians are supposed to live. He says that we are not supposed to live with selfish ambition or conceit and but humility, in humility, count others as more significant as yourself. So he lays out this whole lifestyle that should be what Christians are walking in, what followers of Christ, what their life should look like, what is the fruit of their salvation, what is the fruit of their faith, what is the fruit of the Spirit living in them. It's this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And let us not look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves. Why? He just doesn't say it because it's just a good life to live. He just doesn't say it because it'll keep them out of trouble. He just doesn't say it because he wants them to good, be good people. The reason why he says it is because that is the life that Jesus lived, and he went on to explain it. He says, make this mind your own, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if we are in him, we have this mind, who though was in the form of God, did not count or did not care to be counted as his equal, but emptied himself emptied himself, became a servant of all, took on human form, and humbled himself to the point of obedience to death on the cross. So what Paul is saying is, is humility is not just a lifestyle to lead because it's just a good idea. It's the life that Jesus led. He said that Jesus humbled himself to the point of being obedient to death on the cross. Like Jesus' whole ministry was, a found, was built on the foundation of humility. Why? To restore relationship. Is it not true that the blood of Christ has restored relationship with us and the Father? Is it not true that through the blood of Christ we are ushered into the very presence of God with boldness? Is it not true that the blood of Christ on the cross has torn the veil which has given us full access into his presence? Is it not true that Jesus came and died and he died in humility to restore our relationship with the Father? It's all true. Humility restores relationships. We see it in the life of Jesus. So here are some key takeaways this morning. First is this. Like we say, like I've said every week, what God speaks to us in his presence We must be obedient and faithful in our obedience. But God speaks to us in his, in his presence. We must be faithful in our obedience. So if God is forming and fashioning humility in us in his presence, when we leave his presence, 
even though we never do it. When we leave those appointed moments and those appointed times that we carve out before him, right? And we leave that and then we completely disregard what he's spoken to us. We cannot formulate spirit-led responses. Secondly is this, developing spirit-led responses requires humility, and humility is the first step to holiness. So we come back to this word holiness, or holy. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Father says it a lot, the Lord says it a lot to his people. But in Leviticus chapter 19, he says, be holy as I am holy. And you might think to yourself, man, that's a really, really high bar, Lord. That's a really high bar for you to set for me. It almost seems unfair because I'm not you. But we have to understand what holiness is. To be holy, if you look at the word holy, it means to be set apart. So when he says, be holy as I am holy, see, he has chosen to set us apart for his own. That is the truth, that he desires us to be holy like he is holy. So he has set himself apart for us as our God. He is holy but he has also set us apart for his work, for his love, for his presence, for his righteousness and holiness. He has set us apart so that now that we are considered holy. So he says, be holy as I am holy. And what the truth demands, what the truth demands Grace makes a way for. Let me say that again. What the truth demands, grace makes a way for. So it's in his grace that we can be holy as he is holy. There's another element of this um, relationship to and that is this idea of consecration see he has made us holy he has set us apart and now it is our job to consecrate ourselves for him so us being holy as he is holy is his decision consecration or being consecrated for him is now our decision. So he has made a choice to set us apart. Now it's our decision now to consecrate ourselves or to set ourselves apart for him, for his work. He says, be holy as I am holy. And the first step to holiness is humility. 
and what the truth demands, grace makes a way for. So it never has to be about works. It's always about presence. It's always about transformation and becoming like him. Be holy as I am holy. But my grace will provide a way for that reality. So humility, guys, is the first step. If we're going to live and we are going to respond led by the Spirit, we've got to learn humility. We've got to learn to be brought low. We've got to learn to be humbled as Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience to the cross. So if God can come as a man and humble himself, I think it's well within our reach to do the same. And humility will always make a way for restoration in our lives. Humility will always make a way for restoration in our lives. If you want something restored this morning, if you want a relationship restored this morning, if you want a relationship with your father restored this morning and with someone else, understand that humility makes a way for that restoration. It is in humility we can come before him so he can transform us. So that's what I got for today. I'm so glad you were able to join us. Um, just want to thank you guys for being here. Thank you to everyone on our live stream as well. Um, anyone who's watching on our YouTube channel, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Um, it's been a great run with this devotional. We're going to continue for two more weeks um, in this devotional. And uh, we're really excited about the next two weeks coming up. But let's, let's learn humility, guys. Let's learn humility in his presence for restoration. Thank you.